Welcome to Union Chapel. So glad to see you today. And if you're joining us online, welcome to you. Uh, my name is Greg Paris. Uh, I'm new here. Um, I know that the previous pastor was here for a good long time, about 40 years. And uh, obviously, he did a capable job in leadership. Uh, my, my wife, Beth, and I were hired two weeks ago. And we are thrilled to be here. And of course, while things were left in pretty good condition from the previous guy, uh, I've done some evaluation and just wanted to give you some heads up. You know, the leadership team here wanted to make you know a special occasion of this to introduce me as the new pastor, but I, I insisted on doing it myself. And and I just want to give you some heads up as uh, the new pastor here that I, I see some areas where we, we need to shore up and maybe do a little bit better. And so I just want to lay a foundation for us as we begin this tenure together this week. For example, I, I don't think we do a great job with uh, leadership development in the life of our church. I think we need to be more intentional about designing programs and structures that will help people take steps in their development as disciples and as leaders. And so look for that in the future. Also, I know that this church has a great reputation to serve, serve in the community and, and serve in other parts of the world. And, and I appreciate that. That's a great thing. And I understand as well that there's a real core of people who volunteer their life and gifts here at Union Chapel, and, and so you can count on that core of people. But I also have observed and learned that uh, not everybody's engaged in a meaningful way in service in the life of our church, and so we're going to have to do better. My wife, Beth, I'd like to introduce you to her this morning, but she's not in this service. She's actually over in the children's area volunteering over there, and that's where she will be uh, for the foreseeable future because we've since COVID has basically ended, we are chronically understaffed over there with volunteers in our children's area. So we're just going to have to shore that up and do better. And you should know that, that Beth and I, as leaders, uh, have this attitude that we will do whatever it takes to make it work. That's just the mentality, whatever it takes. There, there's no exceptions. Whatever it takes is what we'll do. And so... Perhaps you'll get a chance to meet her someday if she's not working over in the children's area. Um, I also know that this church has a great history of prayer, and much of the foundations of the life and work influence of our church has been based on prayer, and that's a great heritage. Um, I think we're not doing enough of that these days. And so you can look for more opportunities to sign up and receive resources opportunities for prayer. Um, one, of my, one of my values that I bring with me as the new leader is uh, I, I believe that excellence honors God and inspires people. Do you agree with that? Excellence. So I just think everybody ought to do their best all the time, pursue excellence in every category, and that honors God and inspires people. And one of my, one of my observations as I've arrived here is that this is a wonderful ministry campus that's been developed here and when you come into our facilities it's nicely appointed and you can tell people care about the place and it's well maintained and that sort of thing and so that's all good it's comfortable and inspiring 
Uh, I also have noticed, though, on the exterior of the building, it's not uh, in great shape. You know, I know the building's got a little age on it now and so forth. And so uh, we have already set in motion activities that will find some of the panels, the metal panels on the exterior of our buildings, and those that are bent or a little rusted, those will be replaced uh, before the end of the summer. And, um, and the, whole, the whole facility is going to be painted and will be freshened up that way. All of the landscaping is, is just a, a little bit out of date. And so we're going to have all of that removed and redone. Um, one, of my th- one of my theories is when I, when I go to a business or an organization or a local church, uh, I, have this, I have this idea that you can determine about 90% of whether or not that's a healthy place, a vital place, a life-giving place, if the parking lot's in good shape. You may think I'm a little compulsive or obsessive or something about like that, but that's my theory, and I'm right <laughs> about that. And so by the end of the summer, our parking lot, you know, it's, it's a little tired, and so all the cracks will be filled, and it'll be resurfaced, re, restriped, all that stuff. So by the, end of the, by the end of the summer, on the exterior of our building, it will look new, because that's the value that we want to have going forward. As your new leader, this is what you can expect, that everything it may not be new, but it's going to seem new, looks new, functions new, a newness value, because excellence honors God and inspires people. And so just some things that you can have heads up about. And also, uh, as your new pastor, I want to lay some foundations this week and next, maybe the following, of, of just raising our awareness of who we are and why we're in business and maybe challenge you to take some steps in your own journey along the way. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 2 Kings. This is the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter Four, and I want to read the first seven verses there. This is a very interesting story about a woman who has become widowed, and she has two sons, and she calls on the prophet Elisha to help her. And today's message entitled, A Chosen Vessel. We want to continue the tradition that we have here at Union Chapel to stand to honor God's word, so I invite you to do so as you're able. Here's this fascinating story. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Now, here's the story. This man among the prophets and associated with Elisha in the school of the prophets, he has died unexpectedly, leaving his wife and two sons. Apparently, he has some debts. He's, he has creditors, and now unable to pay the creditors, the creditors have now come knocking on the door, and they're going to take the woman's two sons as slaves to compensate for this debt. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him, shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. 
When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. May God instruct us, open our hearts and minds through this powerful story. You may be seated. Thank you so much. The creditors came to her house. I want to just make that application to the culture in which we live. The creditors are coming to our culture to collect, threatening to take from us the things that are most precious to us, our values, our traditions, our faith, the way we practice relationships in the world, the creditors coming to the house, asking for payment. With that in mind, I have been fascinated by what developmental psychologists describe to us as three steps that each of us, every one of us, all of us go through to one degree or another as we attempt to construct a view of the world. The, the values that we hold, the truths that we embrace that inform us, inform our decisions, inform our relationships. This is the way I see the world and this is the values through which I practice as I go through the world. Developmental psychology tells us that each of us goes through three steps, markers, if you will, in the process of finalizing that worldview. One is construction, the initial building of a worldview. Then there's deconstruction, tearing down the parts of it that aren't particularly helpful, and then reconstruction. So construction happens early in life. Your family of origin give you some markers, the templates, some, some, some signposts to start building a worldview. And when you're young, you do that. And what happens to you is that the worldview is typically in your youth more confined, kind of a narrow view. It's more black and white. Uh, it, it's, it's not as complicated as it will need to be later in life. Uh, this is why young people tend to be more idealistic because they see the world in stark contrast. And, 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 mo- and most of us experience that. But then life happens. And you realize that your r- worldview that may be narrow in your youth is not sufficient enough to answer all of the complexities and the nuances of the world in which we live. And so now you have to deconstruct parts of your worldview in order to accommodate this complexity. And, and so, and so you, you ask the question, okay, what about my worldview is helpful? What is good? What is true? What is beautiful that helps me in the world? And what parts of my worldview are not particularly helpful, maybe even sinful or corrupted in some way? For example, in my case, um, my culture, my environment, my original community, my family of origin left me with racial bias. Well, that's not good. You don't want racial bias in your worldview, so, so you've got to deconstruct that part of your worldview. And then the third phase is to reconstruct your worldview so that it accommodates all the complexity so that you can manage your life. You know, I, get, I need the right view to get through the world. Now, one of, the, one of the advices that I would give to you if you're in a reconstruction period 
And by the way, deconstruction is happening a lot in our culture right now. In fact, we're almost exclusively a, a phase two culture where everything that has been traditional, historic, uh, commonly held values, ethical practice, all of these, all these definition of marriage, you know, you just go through this whole list of things. All of that is being threatened now and deconstructed. But let me just remind you, if you're in deconstruction, if you're in that phase, that it's a phase and that it's not where you want to end up. Life isn't about tearing down everything. Life is about building up. And that's why in reconstruction, it's wise to ask the question, what have the greatest minds, the greatest souls, the greatest saints in history, the billions of people who have lived before us, what have they held as true and what have they given their lives to perpetuate? So you don't have to start from scratch to build a, a worldview. And this is one of the dangers in today's culture that people seem to be starting with a blank slate and starting all over. But I contend that you don't have to destroy your life or wreck your marriage or harm your body or destroy your body's nervous system, for example, through gender reassignment surgery so that you can never experience the pleasure of sexual intimacy because you want to find out for yourselves if your feelings are valid. Other people have already made mistakes like that. You don't have to do those. Learn from others along the way. So as I said, in our world today, we are seeing deconstructionists from large numbers of the media, education, political elites who are using the world and its systems as a critique of Scripture's authority over the church and society. It's happening. A pastor uh, whose name is John Mark Comer from Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, claims that deconstruction is a popular practice right now in, in, in our particular culture because of some external realities and some internal realities. I think he's onto something. So just as an explanation for why deconstruction is so popular in today's culture, one is a cheap grace culture where people in the church have been too interested, more interested in numerical success or that sort of thing rather than actually making disciples of Jesus Christ, authentic apprentices who follow Jesus authentically. So kind of a cheap grace culture. I agree with him about that. There's also this ascendant secular ideology from media, education, the elites, and it impacts us every day. It's 24-7. The narrative keeps bombarding us. Another external marker is the breakdown in the trust of spiritual leaders. How many times have we seen prominent Christian leaders over the last 30 or 40 years who have just broken down morally? And it has a consequence. And people become disillusioned. There are also internal markers leading to this deconstruction. One is a lack of the fear of God. I agree with this wholeheartedly. That we have a generation-wide lack of surrender to the fierce love of God who loves us and calls us to a higher purpose, a higher, more honorable life. And so as a result of that, we have undisciplined and undiscipled carnal activity that goes on. We lack the fear of God. We live as if God doesn't exist. We're practical atheists. It's not a good thing. We also find that the full digital influence of our thoughts and the impressions that we have have its impact You've heard me muse about the Barna research that says that even Christian young people who may spend 3,000 hours a year using digital media 
have a 20 to 1 ratio, 20, 20 to 1, the 20 hours representing the secular ideas and images engaged during, during digital practice compared to one, it's like 20,000 hours to 150 hours. It's a, it's, a, it's a crazy ratio. All of it to suggest that we become what we contemplate. What we fill our mind with is what we become. That's another reason for deconstruction. And, and the, the, the third one that, that Pastor Comer mentions is also so profound. And I want you to hear this today. And it's, it's very simply called a wounded heart. A wounded heart. I don't know about you, but I have, I have a, almost no one that I am personally aware of who's deconstructed their faith who doesn't have some serious wound in their life. Wounded by a Christian leader or a church experience or your family of origin or singleness or loneliness. You know, young people unable to find a Christian spouse to share their life with. These are growing numbers of people who have been hurt, they've been wounded, and they've walked away from the social and the spiritual connectedness of the body of Christ. And as a result of that, they've moved, they've moved from orthodox Christian to progressive Christian to post-Christian. Completely deconstructed all of the values of their faith. These are emotional wounds. People have been assaulted. Uh, a divorce can do it. Emotional abuse and all of these wounds that people experience can become a portal for demonic activity. You know, the Bible says the thief, the devil, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And if he can, if he can throw you off because of this wound and, and, and make you question your identity, your self-worth, the trustworthiness of others, the trustworthiness, the goodness and the vitality of a relationship with God, if the devil can make you doubt that, then you'll de- deconstruct your faith and walk away from your faith. It's very, it's very serious. And by the way, if you're in that period of deconstruction because of wounds in your own life, this is not a judgment of you, not at all. In fact, this is, this is to empathize that this is a reason why deconstruction is so popular in our culture today because so many people have been wounded and maybe you're one of them. And if you've been wounded, th- this, is, this, is not to, this is not to correct you or to scold you. This is to invite you to stop running from God and turn and run back to God. Come back home. This is where your strength is found. This is where your hope is found. This is where life is found. Amen. And so be encouraged in that. So the creditors have come to this generation, threatening to steal and kill and destroy, to take away into captivity and slavery and bondage to a post-Christian worldview. Now, the question that we want to ask, and as your new pastor, How do we move forward from a moment like this? What do we do as the people of faith in a moment like this? You know, we're not alive 50 years ago. We're alive right now. We're not alive 50 years from now. We're alive in 2021. These are the circumstances that we are handed. And so how do the people of faith respond in a loving, wise way to these circumstances? I think our text today gives us some very important clues to the answer to the question. If you have your outline in front of you, you of course, you can pull it up on your app. If you have the outline in front of you, here's the first thing that we learn from this passage, and that is to rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Our hope is in the oil. 
Now, an oil is like a metaphor. It's, it's like a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We find this all through the scripture. An association with, of oil and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the touch of God. So the power and healing presence of God to heal, to empower, to embolden, to give hope, to give counsel to the next generation requires that we rely on the Holy Spirit. Now, the prophet asked the woman, note, what do you have in your house? That's a big question. It's a big question. He said, what do you have in your house? And she said, all I have is a little pot, a little pot of oil, a little pot of olive oil. Now, listen to you. Listen to me. The oil is not the problem. The oil is not the problem. The oil is available, in this case, from one little pot. It's available. So that's not the problem. The main emphasis is not the flowing oil. God's provision is not the problem. God is a big God. He is, he is powerful. He is limitless. He is resourceful. He's got everything we need to accommodate whatever challenge comes to us. So God is not the problem. The oil is not the problem. The problem is whether or not we are willing to contain it. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Put it on the screen for you. Jesus said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So this is post-resurrection and Jesus is reminding the disciples that there's going to be power poured out when the Holy Spirit comes. You say, Pastor Greg, I don't know much about the Holy Spirit. You say, rely on the Holy Spirit. I don't even know what that means. Well, here's, here's the simple of it. Because you can rely on the Holy Spirit and you don't have to know anything. Here's how, here's how it works. Simply pray. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a he. Holy Spirit is the third person of what we call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. And so you simply pray, Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, encourage me. Holy Spirit, counsel me. Holy Spirit, comfort me. Holy Spirit, help. That's it. God will answer that prayer every time. The Holy Spirit will come to you. Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So that's the promise. So how do you receive the Holy Spirit? How do you get the Spirit's help? You ask. Simply ask. That's it. So rely on the Holy Spirit. See the, see the analogy of the oil. Now here's the second point. We need to raise our expectations. Raise our expectations. Now here's what I've, here's what I've noticed in this post-COVID period that we're in. Everybody has been beat up. We're all punch drunk. We've been battered about the head and face for months and months and months in, all, in every category of life. And so here's what happens. For example, this morning, people coming into church. Now, uh, most of you, you know, we're cheerful and awake and, you know, trying. But the fact is we're all, we're all just a little off because of the circumstances. And this is the challenge I want to make to you because as your new pastor, this is something that I'm going to challenge you about all the time moving forward, beginning today. And when I, when I see you, when I see you, loafing about this, I'm going to call you on it. 
we need to raise our expectation. We need to raise our expectation. When you come into worship, raise your expectation. When you go out to serve, raise your expectation. When you engage in some kind of mission, raise your expectation. We serve a big God. We serve a big God who has lots of oil, more oil than we could ever use. And so the challenge for us is to accumulate enough pots, as it were, to receive that oil. Go borrow vessels and borrow not a few, the prophet said to the woman. So you will determine how many miracles will flow. You determine. Heaven is an, has an endless supply of miracles. And it's all determined by how willing you are to receive. Are, are you hearing this? This is, a, this is good preaching. The miracle, the level of God's miracle in your life is predetermined by how much expectation you have that God is actually going to do what he says. So how many pots do you have available? How many pots are represented by your level of expectation, your expectation of hope, your expectation of faith, your expectation of what God is going to do in your life? See, the question is whether or not you're willing to be the vessel God wants to use. So if you want a miracle, then you need to be something that God can pour into in miraculous ways. The reason that miracles flow is because people posture themselves with the expectation that allows God to fill their lives with oil and to flow. Let me ask you this question. If you had an unlimited resource, unlimited resources, and you knew you couldn't fail, what would you attempt for God? If you had unlimited resources and you knew you couldn't fail, what would you attempt for God? I can tell you the answer to that question for myself. I would do exactly what I'm doing. I'll just be frank with you. I've always lived my life this way. I have high expectations from God. I expect a lot. And guess what I get? I get a lot. I mean, five years, four or five years ago, I said, well, let's plant 10 churches in the next 10 years. Then someone said, well, you know, we went past 10, you know, like that. And so maybe it's 100 we're supposed to plant. Maybe we're supposed to plant 1,000 churches in the next 10 years. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Raise your expectation. If you're relying on the Holy Spirit, which is a limitless supply of power and provision, why not raise our expectations to see the miracles happen time and again? It's so quiet in here. <laughs> Here's all I know, friends, that miracles flow where expectations are high. Miracles flow when you know the next step God's calling you to take and you take it in obedience. Because obedience becomes the seedbed of the flow of God's miracle power. Obedience is the seedbed of the miraculous. That's what I know. I'm not speculating about that. I'm not guessing about that. I know that. And so why not expect great things from God? Amen? Why not? He's a big God. Here's the last point. 
live your life with honor. Setting yourself apart from the world is a requirement to be the kind of vessel that God wants to use. That's why, that's why the prophet said to the woman, go to your house, go in the house with your son, shut the door. What is that shut the door business? Go to your house, shut the door and wait for God's provision. Get alone with God. Find out what he wants you to do. Take the next step. Raise your expectation and then begin to live your life in an honorable way. So this is when it gets hard, Pastor. I'm not even sure what it means. Let me tell you what it means. This is how you live honorably for God. It requires saying yes to him and it requires saying no to some people and no to some things. No to some people and no to some things. Yes to Jesus, no to some people, no to some things. Now, I know I'm talking to someone right now. I'm talking to all of us. I'm talking to myself. Some of you are in relationships, social relationships with people, and you can't keep doing that because bad company is corrupting your morals. So you can't keep doing that. And be honorable. Live honorably. Be a vessel of honor. Because that's what's required. A vessel of honor. You have, to live, you have to live your life saying no to some people. Some of you are entangled in romantic relationships right now, and you have to say no to that. Because it, it's a disqualifier for you being a vessel of honor through whom God can pour his miracles. So you have to say no to some people. And, and you have to say no to some things. You know, I love that great hymn that says, rise up, O men of God. Rise up, O men of God. The next phrase, be done with lesser things. In other words, those little things, those pesky things, those annoying things, those tempting things, those things that accumulate in our lives that are so easy and, and so distracting, throws us off track. We have to say no to some things, the lesser things, unimportant things, things that disqualify you from really meaningful service in the kingdom of God. So you have to say no to some people and you have to say no to some things in order to be a vessel of honor. You know, think about vessels. Think about containers. You got bags for groceries. You got a cup for coffee. You got a box for a pizza. Let me just use this. The vessel doesn't give value to the product. The product gives value to the container, to the box, to the cup. And we are the vessel and Christ is in us. You understand that the Bible teaches us that Christ is in us the hope of glory, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you don't have to be great. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be handsome. You just need to be clean and empty. You have to be available, honorable. You just need to be willing. Look on the screen at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the dwelling place of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. It's an amazing thing. It's a miracle. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have received from God, you're not your own. And this is, this is a very powerful theological concept. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. This widow woman had some clay pots that she borrowed from her neighbors that were filled with oil, and that's all we are. We're just a bunch of clay pots into which God puts the treasure of heaven. We, we are indwelt by the presence of Almighty God, the person of his Holy Spirit. This is an amazing thing. That's, that's why you can have church anywhere. You, have to, you don't have to have some big cathedral somewhere to experience God's presence because the Bible says where any two of his people are together, there I am in the midst of them. Yeah, he shows up with us. You go out in a field, you can go into a restaurant, you can, you, can, you can go into a store, you can go to an office, you can go anywhere. And Jesus is with you because he lives in you. And by the way, the devil hates your body because of it. He hates your body because it's the vessel of the Holy Spirit. The devil wants you to believe that there's no God-given purpose for your physical body. This is part of the postmodern, post-Christian narrative in our world, the deconstructionist conversation that's going on in our culture right now, that there is no God-given purpose for your physical body. So you can treat it disrespectfully. You can abuse it. You can use it shamefully. You can change the gender of it. You can change the natural function of it. It doesn't matter. Now, listen, we all live by faith. The question is, what or in who do you place your faith? The culture is constantly telling us to put our faith in ourselves, our inner barometer of good and evil. You know, follow your heart, your inner intuitions, your feelings, your desires, to follow your heart, to speak your truth. All those phrases sound familiar, don't they? That is the path, so we are told, to human flourishing. This is the key to happiness to follow yourself that way. And of course, the reality is that politicians and marketing departments and elites the world over and the devil himself have a vested interest in getting us to believe that big pile of blank. Because that's what it is. It's a big, hot, stinky pile of poo. Follow your heart. Speak your own truth. What a pile. It's ridiculous. It's insane. Let me just remind you that on the cross, Jesus' body was bloodied. It was beaten. It was pierced. And he said at the end of that day, it is finished. Notice he didn't say, I am finished. He just said, it is finished. They buried that dead vessel but the Bible implies that Jesus went to Sheol and started a soul train out of Hades. Started the first soul train. Three days later, the Bible teaches that Jesus re-entered his body with the keys of death, hell, and the grave. You understand, Satan is so defeated, he no longer has the keys to his own house. He's done. And that's why you can be free. You can be free from any pain, any habit, any hurt, any hang-up, any problem, any wound, because Jesus has the keys to your freedom. So here's what Jesus did. He borrowed the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea because he would only need it for three days. So he only borrowed a tomb, but he bought you and me. He laid in the tomb for three days, but wants to live in you 
for eternity. Praise God. So we are the vessel. Think about that. We're the vessel. We're the preacher. We're the servant. We're the caregiver. We're the volunteer. We're the helper that God will use to make a difference in the lives of people. And so here's what we hear from emerging cultures. Young millennials, Generation Z, uh, alphas that are emerging now, the youngest among us. These emerging generations are saying, give me a dream. Give me a purpose. Give me an influence. Give me a life that matters. God, I want my life to make a difference. I want to have an impact in the world. These are phrases that we hear from, from these young people over and over again. And so that's what the call of this generation is. God, let my life make an impact, make a difference, a life that matters. And God's response, give me a vessel. You want to make a difference? Be a vessel of honor. You, you want to have purpose in your life? Be a vessel of honor. You, you want to change the world? Be a vessel of honor. You want to you you want, you want leave an imprint and a legacy of, God, of goodness and, and justice and wholeness in the world and health in the world? Give me a vessel, a vessel of honor. That's what it takes. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, there was a man named Ananias. And God called him to go pray for a man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was the chief persecutor of the Christians in the first century. He, he, was, he was nasty. He was mean. Christians avoided him because they were afraid of him. Now, this Saul of Tarsus eventually became the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the books of the New Testament. But when he was a pagan and a Jew and a hater of Christians... God blinded him on his, on his way to Damascus one day, and he calls this guy Ananias. We don't know anything about Ananias. He appears in the Bible here in one verse. We just know he's a guy who follows Jesus in the first century. And the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, this man Saul of Tarsus, is my chosen instrument. You see that? A chosen vessel, the apostle Paul, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, and their kings and to the people of Israel. And so he calls Ananias to go and pray for Paul. Why? Because he's a chosen vessel to take the wonderful meaning of Christ to the world. Now, friends, here's the question I have for you today. Are you a chosen vessel? Do you want to be a chosen vessel? Can you imagine God asking you to be a chosen vessel? Let me just, let me just give you the answer. You are a chosen vessel. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation whom God has called out of his darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so my challenge to you today as we think about the future together is that we must rely on the Holy Spirit. And we must raise our expectations. And we must live our lives in such a way that it honors God and we become the men and women that he can use to flow through us in miraculous ways to the world. Do you have an ear for this? Do you have an ear for it? Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment and pray? I know this is a challenging message 
Some of you are in the middle of a, the process of deconstruction in your own life. And if you were honest, you'd say, Pastor, I, I confess I've, I've lost a lot of my faith. I'm struggling. Could I encourage you today not to abandon your faith? It got constructed there for a reason because God, God was chasing you and loving you. Don't give up on him. Stop your running. Come on back. There may be other parts of your worldview that need to be deconstructed. That's okay. That happens to all of us. But please don't abandon your faith. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's your hope. Hang on to him. Some of you have been challenged today when I said you have to let go of some people, say no to some things. Make that commitment today. Decide to do it. Because who doesn't want to be a part of what God's doing in the world? Who would want to miss that? This is the most exciting, wonderful, adventuresome life there is to live following Jesus. I know you want to do that. In these ways and ways I am not mentioning right now, God is speaking to so many of you, I know. Let me ask you this question. Do you want to be a vessel of honor? Useful to God? Relying on his spirit? Living by faith and expectation? Honorable? Day to day? Useful in his hands? If that's you, would you just lift your hand? Say, I do. I want to be a vessel of honor. I'm making decisions today that will make me more useful. Remember, it's not about the oil. It's about the container. You, you do the container part, he'll do the oil part. Wonderful. Lord, we thank you this morning for this amazing story, the power of your word. Now, impart your truth to our hearts. Meet us, each one, at the point of our need. And help us to move from this point honorably and fruitfully in Jesus' name and for his sake. And the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?